Hi, folks. It's worth mentioning now that this episode might include terms and words we do not normally use on this show, and it will discuss issues pertaining to threats and harassment online that might upset some listeners and probably isn't suitable for children. Parents, please listen to the show first before listening with your kids, and store owners, the same goes for playing it for your patrons. We feel the topic is critical to the magic community, so we are not shying away from it. And, to be clear, this topic does not violate our list of banned topics. I'm Phil DeLuca. And I'm Sean Watson. And I'm Adrian Reynolds, the MTG ethnographer, couch surfing for science. <laughs> and we are Commanderin. Now, Phil, can I just quickly interject before you do your normal thing? If this is your first episode of Commanderin, you've only <laughs> just discovered us, listen to an earlier one and then come back to this. Yeah, please go back a couple of episodes. <laughs> not, not this one. Thanks for listening, everybody. We put a spotlight on community issues. We certainly do. But never, ever talk about three banned topics. Religion, politics, and Hearthstone. If you want to support us, give us a five-star rating wherever it is you get your podcast from. Or, if you really want to support us, visit patreon.com slash commanderandmtg. And for even a buck a show, that's right, one quarter the cost of a pack of magic cards. You would do amazing things for the show in terms of what we can afford to do and bring prizes to you and so forth. Don't forget to visit us on YouTube, where this video will probably be playing by the time you get there. Comment, rate, and subscribe, and uh, play us to the end. That actually matters in terms of statistics. So, we have... Let's just call it a show lined up. I don't know if it's wonderful. <laughs> it's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> That's Record right. scratch sound. I say that because we're going to talk about harassment in the Magic the Gathering community, focusing uh, on online harassment because of some things that have happened recently. On Commanderin, we care about community more than any other issue. It's all about knowing and celebrating that other people are playing and helping them to play better with each other and play their decks better, right? And frequent listeners already know that. So when something happens to disrupt it, such as the events which culminated so far in Christine Sprankle's departure from the Magic the Gathering community, we have to take it seriously. What's different this time is we will not stop trying to prevent these from happening again. Also... We are not going to shy away from the topic as we have done in the past. I do think, right, so our brothers over at the Command Zone uh, haven't put an episode out this week, which That's is right. very noble in standing in solidarity with uh, Sprankle. But I think because of the type of show we are, I think we just have to talk about this. And some people might not like it. Some people might be fans of the... Uh, people will be talking critically about listen to this if you don't like it we'll have a dialogue if you 
agree. Maybe we can shed some light. Maybe change some people's opinions that do support the uh, person. Well, I'll say it. There's an elephant in the room. The people over at Unsleeved Media's stances. So that's where we're at, people. If you don't want to listen to this, there's no shame in tuning out now. Last time we did anything about uh, discrimination or... In fact, the first time we had Shiva Mum. Yeah. A Episode people, 63 and 64. Yeah, a lot of people disagreed with us. These are just our opinions. Feel free to ignore them entirely, but everyone has a opinion which we have a right to share in a constructive manner, and this is ours. That's right. To talk about our opinions, we brought on an expert, Sean. Adrian Reynolds is a magic ethnographer who is studying our community in its myriad forms. Why? No one knows. Maybe we'll find out tonight. She is, though, a commander player, and we will spend a little bit of time at the end talking about her favorite commander deck. So, say hello, Adrian. Hi, how are y'all doing? <laughs> Thanks for coming on. I am actually kind of an expert. Yeah? Uh, the reason that I study the Magic the Gathering community is I am an anthropologist who studies Western-facing cultures. And in order to study complex international cultures of activity, I needed something that was international, where people identified as members of that community, that was more limited than, say, studying all global medical workers or all global technical workers. So in order to do that, you need to have methodologies. The methodologies didn't exist. And I thought I was never going to be able to play Magic again because I'd have no time. And my professor said, you know, you should, you should do an ethnography of this Magic the Gathering thing that you wrote this one paper on. And I was like, do you have any idea what you are asking me to do? There are 27 separate cultural actors in Magic the Gathering that I can mention off the top of my head. We have a black market, a gray market, and a white market. We actually create our own value. And she said, that sounds great. And I said, that sounds crazy. But she won in about six months. So <laughs> <laughs> she was very convincing. However, she was right because the methodology I thought I was going to learn when I was studying anthropology apparently did not exist. The question is, when an entire culture has a problem in Western industrialized, educated, rich nations, we have a tendency to devolve fixing it onto training individuals. Training creates lots of different reactions and often doesn't work. And it's not the individuals that are the problem, it's the culture. So how do you even study a culture? Sorry, are you saying that we address problems by trying to train the individuals so that they no longer commit the infraction? Correct. But we do it without actually changing the culture. We expect if we change enough individuals, the culture will change automatically. That doesn't happen in any kind of organizational behavioral sense. You can do it if there's a single bad actor. So, for instance, the situation that we are addressing tonight, theoretically, you can fix a big part of it by convincing one person to change their behavior, but it won't change the culture that allowed all of the things the various lines to happen at the same time hmm. that in effect target and terrorize individuals. And I know terrorize sounds like a really strong word, but the reality is if you're tense every time you pick up a phone, if you are worried about who's at the door when you answer, 
it almost doesn't matter how realistic the threat is. Your body's going through it anyway. That's right. And those are all concerns that people involved in this situation have had, correct? Yes. You know, the you mentioned Christine Sprinkle at the beginning. She has actually been a continuous presence as I've been doing this. I'm in the I'm at 3.5 years of observations that are specifically ethnographic field observations. I participated, um, we can talk about that at some point, but the kind of work that I'm doing as an ethnographer is a native participant observer, which means I go into places and I experience them as a member of the community. My DCI number is four digits long, so I am a long-standing member of the community. And nice. instead of talking about other people, I experience the culture, community, and action and I am the, the scientific instrument that records it. And then it goes through a bunch of hmm. analysis and fancy anthro stuff that we can talk about some other time. You said you're a native participant. Now, that implies that you play magic. Do yes, you play? Yes, I do. I play magic. Um, I played competitively way back at the beginning at Origins in 95. I feel like it's 95, 96. Oh, you mean the convention, Origins. Yeah, no, I played competitively at the beginning, and then I stopped because I found out it was uh, ELO, yeah. um, and that felt like unfair because I was never going to spend enough money or enough time for somebody's ranking to go lower than mine. Like, mm -hmm. like if I come in and play twice a year in an ELO system, and I do well, I make day two, which is a thing that happened back in the day, somebody who spent an awful lot of time and an awful lot of money, and back in those days, chasing down the cards to get them because we didn't have the internet like we do now. That's right. No singles market. Oh, yeah. Nice. The singles like the singles market was barely there. It was all through sports card stores. Yeah. And this is actually one of the reasons that this is such a good environment for me to develop new methodologies. I did not have to learn the lingo. I have been around since the instantiation of Magic the Gathering in 1994. Till now, I haven't been out of the community Although I ha had stopped playing competitively almost almost immediately when I found that out. Yeah. Because I was trolling them with this giant deck that it was all, it was a theme deck and Mill was a big deal. And I had like 80 cards in my deck on purpose. <laughs> it was a Holy Land deck. It was, it was Leviathans and Candelabra of Tanos. And <laughs> now, how and when did you discover Commander? So I had a long break from playing Magic. I was an operations director, I worked in IT, I worked in global management, and when I went back to school because I had this deep burning question about how we treat each other at work, and I got accepted to a very fancy school, uh, I was like, oh my god, I'm never going to be able to play Magic again. <laughs> and I used to like to play Standard, and I was like, uh, I guess I'd better... Find a way to play not standard because there's no way to keep up, just like keep up with the turn of the cards. So I had a friend who loved Commander and convinced me to learn Commander with him. And I was like, well, this is the only way I'm going to get to play Magic like twice a year. So teach me Commander. And he gave me a Kalia deck. And hmm. I love Kalia. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to learn. <laughs> what, what he did is, so he's, he's a mythical beast. He is actually... The person who hates to play competitively only plays with his friends and owns every single damn card that exists. I walked into his house. He's a record producer. I walked into his house 
and he had two rooms dedicated to magic. He had long tables set up with black tablecloths so he could see everything, and the cards were piled like two feet high in piles and stacks. They were all the cards that were viable for the types of decks he was building, and since he knew he was teaching me from scratch, and commander strategy is completely different than everything I play, he was like, okay, here are these pre-con decks. Pick one of them, and I'm going to play this deck that I'm building that is just not working, and that should be about even. And I play, when in doubt, I play White Weenie, <laughs> because I like little tiny things running and attacking big things, and I liked banding. So, he, so I looked at them, and I'm like, okay, I know deeply how white and black work, and Kalia lets you bring out dragons, demons, and angels, and how can you not mm -hmm. love that? So I picked them because those were the colors I was most comfortable playing with in an unfamiliar strategy. And he said, yeah. you have just picked the only deck that I would be worried about playing a pre-con against anything, including <laughs> my good decks. And I did not understand then, but I do now, because we were actually yeah. playing, um, we were playing in a three-pod. And that, that is how I learned with him teaching me that way. Now, he's also a uh, live-action role player, right? He is, he is the person that convinced me to be in a vampire LARP when I hate vampires, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so Sean also LARPs. Uh, we, we keep threatening to do an entire episode on this. Oh, I, I'll, I'll come play for LARPs. <laughs> how long have you been LARPing, Sean? Uh, well, since I was 18, so 18 years. Wow. I started off, oh, and actually, no, I started doing Vampire Lop when I was 16, so yeah, yeah. 20 years. I started off doing Camarilla UK, which was the Vampire the Masquerade English or British wing of uh, White Wolf's sure. Mind's Eye Theatre, and then moved on to running around a field with a rubber sword. And... Oh, so you actually do the buffer LARPs? Oh yeah, I do. I do the full full on things. Although to be honest, it's mostly an excuse to get drunk and mess around with my friends nowadays. <laughs> we have a policy: if ever anyone says the phrase, well, two phrases. One, don't you know who I am? Or the more uh, annoying phrase, let me tell you about my character. <laughs> then we normally take them to the woods, stab them, and say, "You can tell us about your next character now." <laughs> But, um, in 30 seconds, Adrian, how would you describe your character from start to finish? <laughs> Which character? The the one from the, the LARP where, where Patrick brought the me in? Tax, uh, yeah, oh, the tax. Oh, okay. I did not want to play a vampire. I was a toy reviewer who had been brought into a diner where they were having some sort of vampire the masquerade thing. I thought all of the bad poetry I received as an editor was probably because they never read it out loud. And then I found out, no, they actually read it to this vampire prince out loud in front of people and said, this is ridiculous and made fun of it. So I got invited to another LARP and I said I would not play a vampire and they probably shouldn't <laughs> cast me because I wasn't going to be anybody's slave and I certainly wasn't going to be anybody's lunch. So they weren't going to be interested. And Patrick said... I have this character that I wrote for a guy, but I'll change it for you. It's the most powerful mortal in the entire game. And it was an IRS special agent who was there to actually just run an audit on the club they all hang out at. And, and her name was Claire. 
uh, was she religious? Uh, yes. So what happened is I did not know Vampire the Masquerade, although I had LARPed, the Interactive Fiction Society was part of New Jersey, New York, the East Coast con scene at the time. The best way to approach Vampire the Masquerade is to not know anything about it. The joy of the game is discovering the world of darkness. Well, and it was perfect because I was immortal, right? And I was just there in order to get their taxes done. So I went out and I bought pastel suits. And the character apparently originally was not supposed to live very long. But I actually played the character for two years. Uh, The very first night I was there, everybody broke the masquerade in front of me so badly in the first half hour that in order for them to even have a chance at the rest of the game, I was desperately searching for a way to make sure that they had some realistic cover so somebody could correct them that was like higher up in their chain. And I was like, what could I possibly be that would know so little about vampires that none of that would occur to her? <laughs> and finally, I had to come up with a very religious, orthodox, Jewish... IRS special agent. So none of the things made any sense because we don't have undead. And um, and then I played it that way for a while and it managed to cover everybody. But then the priest came up and broke the masquerade in front of me. So I assumed it was some sort of Christian thing and couldn't figure out why a priest was at a nightclub anyway. Uh, they, they were really bad at the masquerade. I give you a few reasons a priest would be in a nightclub. I found out a whole bunch of them later. And then eventually what happened is all I wanted was some coffee because they kept insisting on meeting me after midnight at this club in order to get the documents. And uh, then they all thought that they had bro- that I knew what was going on and they were trying to kill me. And... and now how did your character end up? The character ended up trapped in the Tremere Chantry. She is technically haunting it, although she is still alive. In or- Once she figured out that vampires were real, she said, well, if their stuff is real, my stuff probably is too. And she ran across to New Jersey, where Chabad Lubavitcher Kabbalists live, for real, in real life. (laughs) And I got the game masters to agree that, yeah, no, if that stuff is real, my stuff is real too. I was able to use basic religious practices that had mythic or protective folklore behind them. There would be a determination as to whether or not they were actually magical enough. And nobody'd question that I believed them. So the Tremere were eventually who had to get rid of me because I almost became prince while I was human. <laughs> Don't mess with the IRS, man. That's the truth. Don't mess with the tax man. <laughs> death and taxes. And apparently death is negotiable. Taxes are still not. If they had just <laughs> paid their taxes, I would have left them alone. <laughs> That's sound advice for many, many a person. So before we go... On to the main topic. Is listening to this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he play a vampire Before too? We go. <laughs> I'm coming after all of the Camarilla man. Everybody Going needs to, to pay their taxes. <laughs> <laughs> So before we go on to the main topic, which is uh, serious, we wanted to give you a little little light view into Adrian's gaming history. We have some news, though. Now, Sean, you have some uh, news about Shivam. Yeah, so those of you who are particularly observant will note Shivam is not here. So Shivam has decided to join the Flat Earth Society and is currently in his yard with a spirit level out trying to prove to his wife, look... (laughs) 
the bubble is floating in the middle. It can't be curved. Yeah. Um, that's his stance, and we're going to support him because we're a supportive crew. So... <laughs> didn't expect that that's great all beliefs are held all right yeah i mean we are going to support shivam in this exploratory phase it's almost like he's back in college except with spirit levels yeah so uh good luck with that shivam <laughs> next week we can talk about whether or not the moon landing actually happened too <laughs> the moon landing well obviously <laughs> the moon landing didn't happen it was faked by stanley kubrick but at the same time that was only to cover up the fact that the germans have had a moon base on the moon since 1922. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, if the Earth is flat, doesn't that mean the moon is also flat? And wouldn't it actually just be like a horizontal leap? That's the sort of thing a government shill would say. Yes, it is. I am a government shill. I worked for the Department of Defense. We'll have exactly. to ask Shivam about the details. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, Sean. You got me. Oh. <laughs> We do have playmats for sale for the month of November and December. Shipping is a $2.50 flat rate to anywhere in the United States. So order as many playmats as you'd like. You know the drill about our special foil cards that are signed and some non-foil cards. But each person who orders a playmat or several will get at least one Deadeye Navigator or God Pharaoh's gift. So go ahead and do that. Now let's uh let's get to our main topic now the the tone is about to change folks and this is where we might say some words that we don't normally say on commander and adrian do you want to set this up so i'm going to start by explaining the work that i'm doing which is primarily for the study what i do is i am more concerned with members of the magic community there are as i mentioned before 27 cultural actors that i've identified as participants in the magic community you do not have to be a player. You certainly don't have to be organized player or pro player. You can be the person who sorts cards at the store. You could be the mom who makes sandwiches so your kid doesn't tilt because of lack of protein at the GP. All of these people are part of the entire culture of magic. There is no one who doesn't count. So the way my methodology went, and there's actually uh, there's a podcast with Aaron Campbell back on the deck tees that I introduced myself to the community so that I could be invited places, and maybe we can link that somewhere. And it will describe the methodology. But primarily, if you tell me you're a member of the magic community, I do not vet you, I do not check anything. If you know enough to invite me, I just go. And yes, that's a little dangerous. Like a stray cat. Yeah, yeah, it's having an ethnographer on your couch in the way that I used to say it and probably would again when I start that end of it up again is it's cool to have an ethnographer in your couch. Apparently you can show it off at parties, uh, but it is a little bit creepy. So in exchange for having an ethnographer on your couch, I will cook for you. I will help keep your children alive. I will help sort your card collection uh, and I will clean. And that, especially the card collection sorting, is, is a pretty big sell. And what I do is I stay with you for as long as you will have me or the amount of time that I have available, as long as I can afford to get to you. And I go wherever I'm invited by whomever I am invited by. And that means that, you know, I travel in a lot of spaces that I might not have if I were just performing my own membership in the community. I care as much about when you are not playing or not doing the thing that makes you part of the magic space 
as when you are doing those things because it's about how magic fits in your life. There's lots of ways to study the public-facing parts. It's very, very difficult to get to what I call the layer behind the store. So that's what I've been doing for three years. So I stay with people, and I, I have had amazing experiences with amazing people. It is a good thing I learned how to play Commander from Patrick because that is the glue that is happening behind a lot of people who can or cannot play. The same reason that I learned it or people who would get disappointed with their store, you can pick up a game of Commander and you can just play it. And it's really expressive and there's a lot of personal identity and choice that goes into it. So it really speaks to a lot of people. So I, I have that to offer back to the community is Commander is this wonderful, beautiful thing that is really kind of like a like the mortar behind different bricks in the magic community. And that's not yeah. something I would have predicted when I started. So that's how I do the work. That's good to hear that Commander is that important. And because of that, that's why we're t we, in particular, this podcast is talking about this issue. Now, Magic, as, as we all know, is, is a game, right? And games can and should be played by anyone. So we as a community and this podcast holds this opinion both individually and as a collective that we should welcome everyone who wants to shuffle up fairly and play without cheating right and the community as a whole also has those standards at the very least those standards and when people violate those the community tends to respond now one of those tenets right the, the part that gets overlooked a lot is that we should welcome everyone who wants to do those things. And sadly, as we found out this weekend, well, many of us have known for years, but really it came to a head this weekend with the departure of Christine Sprankle that there are those in the community who do not want everyone to shuffle up and play. I think you've hit something there, though, Phil, that we're talking about uh, Jeremy Hambly of MTG Headquarters on Sleeve Media is the person that specifically yes. didn't want Christine Sprankle involved. And I think he doesn't consider her to be a player. And I think because she doesn't participate in pro tours in the way he wants, she's there in, you know, in her amazing costumes doing what she does. But because she's not, you know, sitting there intensely trying to get into feature matches and top eight and PTQs and stuff, he holds no value in what she does and comes across quite um, bitterly about her success. Well, y'all know that uh, she's like a really intense commander player, right? Yes. I'd love her to come on the show, but you know, it seems hard to do now. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit difficult. It, it would be difficult. So Christine actually was a member of the cosplay community who happened to play Magic. And this is one of the things that I think might be getting lost for her individual story, although there was an excellent podcast from Magic Mike's today that's going to contextualize a lot of what you're talking about with Unsleeved Media, Jeremy, and, and the players in the community who are involved in this. But Christine herself, when she first showed up at Worlds, the role of Pro Tour, according to Watsi when they created it, is part of a metagame as defined by Richard Garfield. And Richard Garfield defines a metagame the same way I do as an anthropologist, which is it goes all the way out 
to that mom with the sandwiches that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Everything matters to the metagame. The term got moved down to a competitive term, so it only meant the card environment that you're playing in. But that's not an accurate use of the term if you're looking at it as a cultural tool. So Christine loves IPs, numerous IPs, and had cosplayed in them and is a member of the cosplay community, the same way Sean or I would be LARPers who also happen to play Magic. If we had found a way for our characters to play Magic inside, like if I had decided instead of being somebody who was an Orthodox rabbi, so I didn't know what vampires were, and I decided I was a Magic player instead, so I assumed that all of these vampires were LARPers, and maybe I brought my magic cards to interact with them, that would be a way of crossing cultures of activity to combine them. And, you know, it would be like a mashup. It would be fun. What Christine did is she found out that ProTor was happening by her, that Worlds was happening by her. Nobody really knows about organized play who isn't deeply engaged in it, especially something like Worlds. And 2011 was not the height of centralized information. And she, That's right. she said, hey, I love Elspeth. And this is where, if you love magic, this is where the cosplayers will be, right? We'll all be at Worlds. So she got her costume together and went to Worlds. And uh, as somebody who has now cosplayed because of Christine at her invitation, after having been a competitive player, let me tell you, there are serious and significant differences to that. And I've worked in costuming a long time theatrically and everything is different. The entire act of cosplay is different. It actually almost made me trash my thesis and have to start over again. I've got 70 extra pages of thesis from the experience of cosplaying. It changed my relationship to the game and the space and my work. Cosplay is no joke. Yeah. In many ways, it's a very intimate experience with the game itself. It is. There's a reason I did not cosplay until specifically invited. And that that's a whole host of things. One of them is, one of my hangups would be as an actor, I was very uncomfortable cosplaying as something that I would not be cast as. That felt weird. And <laughs> yeah. I couldn't do that. LARP, I would never play an elf because I'm a large husky man. <laughs> but you can be a large husky elf. What I couldn't be yeah, is... but in my head, elves are thin and lithe. Right, right. So, so all of us actually have to go through a kind of personal journey even just to choose a cosplay. But I think a thing there is that I wouldn't begrudge another large person playing an elf. Exactly. I just wouldn't do it myself. Exactly. And so this is not just a problem within magic. This is a problem within the cosplay community. We police bodies and we police bodies for multiple reasons. When they show up in spaces where we feel more empowered, we learn more about ourselves as people with boundaries than we really do about the boundaries. So when Christine shows up in cosplay, which is an act of love and enthusiasm for the character, it takes a lot of work. Even if you were just doing it like movie styling where you you buy pieces and put them together, that takes hours of research and work. And I know because I, I have done costuming for film. So, so whether or not you make it even is, I'm just going to say, that that's kind of a bull thing. I know nobody's done the work if they dismiss that work. Yeah, that's right. I'm a judgy ethnographer. So what happens is she, she shows up at Worlds 
people at Worlds have convinced themselves that they are very serious, that their identity is, this is not just a game, this is a serious thing. It uses markers of finance and markers of high levels of competitiveness, and you have a dress-up player there. And the most stigmatized form of play in adults is dressing up. So you, you literally start with a culture war the second she walks in. The creators of the game and the pros who do not have their identity based in seriousness of the game itself, they can be serious without the game being serious, are really excited. People are excited to be next to her. Watsy personnel are really excited. It's the first time they've seen a fan dress up. And she broke the space. But when she broke the yep. space, she also broke a number of identities. So when you become involved with the community, it's not the same as just opening up a game. You don't identify yourself as a Monopoly player. So why do you identify yourself as a Magic player? And there's 118 pages of answer to that. So we're going to ignore most of it. But I'm going to say like right out front, when you see what has happened this weekend... She identified the actor that made it intolerable for her, but she has been fighting a continuous level of noise, both from her original cosplay environment and the magic community, because that unfortunately goes with the hobby. So she just reached a point where for her own health, she probably had to stop. Yeah. Now, the person who was creating the harm had not solely targeted Christine. And that's the thing that we should be talking about because what happened was actually the same thing as is happening in the larger world where there is now a sense that you will be believed when you report. So what Christine really did is once again break a bank of silence and break down a wall because once she came out and said, this person is a person that we have tried to handle things with Quietly, we did the expected game culture thing of suck it up. We tried to ignore him. He didn't go away. And the, the abuse has been continuous. When she did that, that allowed other members of the community who would not be traditionally looked at as vulnerable members of the community to admit that the same thing had been happening to them. And that includes some like the biggest names in our community the professor wedge yes yeah so you've got the professor wedge um command zone has had personal experience with being targeted by them when i posted something about it is a breakdown explainer on twitter somebody responded i said carefully most or many and somebody said all but two or three um so this is a person who has used tactics that are above and beyond what I would say is prototypical. I'm going to use their term. I'm sorry, it's a curse. But I, there's shit posting, which is a specific term used by the community. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's fine. And that is different than being an edgelord. They are not the same thing. And he is actually using these terms in order to create a blurred sense of meaning so that he will get people who have done the kind of lighter intent to agree yeah. with him. He is trying to create solidarity by using these terms. Can I give my perspective as an outsider on, on the whole thing coming into it? So... When it all erupted this weekend, I was aware of uh, MTG headquarters. And in fact, several of our patrons and our fans we talked to a lot 
had uh, flagged this guy before and said, oh, this guy's just a, a jackass and he likes to stir up controversy and stuff. And then I, I, I follow Sprankle on social media and I read what happened. So I thought, oh, what's going on here then? And, you know, he was quite vocal saying, well, I posted one thing six months ago. But then the more I looked into it, the more I realised he's painting himself as, oh, I just put my honest opinion out once six months ago. But the levels, like... Toxicity is the word. It just, I kept scratching surfaces and going, well, surely he's not commanding his legions to go and harass people. And then you see things like Jeremy's specifically requesting his uh, fans to go and harass Wedge at yeah. GP Vegas's panels and uh, mock him because of his weight and things and like Jimmy that. And Jimmy from the command zone. Yeah. And, and saying to his, and like, so in fact, not only are you doing the things that you're saying you're specifically not, you're being found out about it and then still denying it. and <laughs> Denying it. And now he's demanding apologies from the people who have called him out, including the professor who recorded that amazing video where he spliced Jeremy's own words into his video and just asked Jeremy what he was getting out of it. So the professor's video is very interesting because he was the only one who was able to put together a response with um, with active primary source within, I would say, 48 hours of everything breaking. Yeah. Part of that has to obviously be because it affected him in a way that he had to be tracking. One of the things that I will say, and it's not about Jeremy, it's about generally, when you start getting these things, especially because we don't want to report. So most people don't want to report because they're not trying to protect anybody else. It's because they're trying to protect the community that they love. They don't want this to be the first thing people find out on a web search. They don't want the first thing associated with their name to be somebody who was just using them as uh, you know, target practice. It gives them power when we say don't feed the trolls, that's kind of what we mean. The act of ignoring targeted acts is not the same as don't pay attention to negative feedback. So we get a lot of advice that's about kind of lower key things than is happening. One of the big things about that six months is numerous people who were not Christine Sprankle pointed out that he had multiple live feeds that were then erased. So he would write or say, or people like him will write or say several things, erase them, and then the stuff that stays up is supposed to be not so bad. So part of my question would be, if this is the thing that you left up, it's still actually a violation of terms of service if what you're doing is basically being a griefer gamer with the rules of social media, you've played too close to the edge, and you're going to lose the game. And is that what happened here? I don't know yet, because part of the problem is, so YouTube has managed to remove the uh, the specific thing that somehow or another people think is not representative of abuse, where he compares, you know, no, nobody should ever shame sex work, because it's just work. And... It should be regulated, and it should be safe for people to participate in with agency. Almost everything that's a negative would be a positive as long as everything was consensual. So that would be the other part that goes back to what the professor was saying in the video that he created, which is this is a one-sided act of engagement, especially in the professor's case. He does not 
engage in direct callouts. His critiques are based on product. He usually ends with a hopeful note that it will change. There's nothing, there's nothing native to the professor's work that would indicate that there was a double-sided beef. It becomes clearer once you actually see the kind of work that's positioned against him, and it doesn't have to just be Jeremy. So if you were going to engage in the edgelord stuff or the, the made-up beef for clicks or whatever like that, reciprocal engagement is the thing that makes it culturally legitimate, even amongst the people who find it a form of entertainment. It is the lack of reciprocity that creates the kind of situation we're in right now and moves it to harassment. Please leave me alone. Find another target. It is not an invitation for do it some more. It's kind of clearly not. If you are a person <laughs> who keeps saying the things that are upsetting the other person, you have crossed the line. And therefore, eventually, people who are bad at that kind of boundary are going to violate the rules of a TOS because they don't see boundaries as real. One of Jeremy's defenses that he's put out, and I see this defense from a lot of people that use this kind of inflammatory, kind of clickbait attitude to life in everything they say and do, is that, well, this is just my opinion. I'm allowed my opinion. You know, I guess in America it would be my First Amendment right says I am allowed to say what I like. And the fact you don't like it makes you, uh, insert whatever alt-right term you want here, I'll, I'll use Jeremy's term, uh, a sub-beta loser, and you should go cry in a corner, special snowflake. And that I, I don't understand how you interact with that, like, other than to just be abusive back i guess with what i do from where i'm from well, just go fine you're this part of it would be actually rationally going back to that you know the first thing you ask is are you aware that when you use the terms beta and cuck you are using specific semiotic terms that associate you with white supremacy surely you don't want to do that and then you give them the opportunity to back down this does not have to be about jeremy this is just anything the other thing is self-protection yeah, yeah. as soon as you see those words some of the things you do is just stop engaging or, you know, that's not don't feed the trolls. That's you are not individually charged with saving the world at your own expense. You never have to set yourself on fire to keep somebody else warm. So it's <laughs> a good piece of advice. <laughs> it's a good piece of advice in a lot of places. Hang on a second. I'm going through my entire Twitter timeline and deleting, well, pretty much everything at this point. <laughs> <laughs> have you been setting yourself on fire to keep other people warm? Yeah, well, let's let's just say I've been spraying flames around. Okay, and uh, <laughs> maybe I maybe I have no hair or eyebrows. Yeah, you might want to you Phil might want to be careful about the immolation thing. Not everybody is Chandra. <laughs> uh. But I, I think like you raise a good point about associations with things like the alt right and white supremacism, which I consider to be the same thing. But um. I, th I think a lot of people that use those terminology on the internet aren't actually aware of that association in our modern age. And I'm not even 100% sure that Jeremy is consciously aware of making that connection. Although that doesn't mean he isn't. Okay, so what I would say here is you are correct. And one of the goals of the people who originated those terms is so that they become mainstream by people like magic players and video gamers using them. So they become normalized and then they are more receptive to the philosophy. 
which is the reason you're not accusing anybody of being a white supremacist when you ask them if they're aware of how those terms are used. You are letting them know that they're associated with that. However, at this particular point in time, there is no way that anybody who is recording as much content under as many names as the person in question is unaware of it, if for no other reason than I've actually watched people on Twitter say it to them. So then at that point, they're making a choice. Once again, what you do has to be related to what you can do. So what the professor did was very brave, really, because he knew when he was doing it, he was going to make himself a more obvious target. I believe he even said that in the video. He did, and, and we are, quite honestly, running that risk here. Um, for me, it just becomes more data, but it's dangerous, you know. But on the other hand, you know, if Jeremy actually invited me to his house, I would have to seriously think about going because that is my methodology and that would put me at risk. Yes. Yes, it would. <laughs> I mean, so what you'd be doing then, uh, somebody went, and I don't know what I would do, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I expect it to be a low risk of happening, but I could be wrong. You know, he might call me on it and then I would have to deal with it. And I would probably deal with it publicly with the community while I was working through it. When you were saying that earlier that you, I'm going to just abbreviate it all by saying couch surf, right, mm -hmm. in order to study the magic community. That's the first thing that came to mind. Like, would you go to Jeremy Hambly's house and observe how he interacts with magic in his life? It is my methodology. So remember the part where I said that I don't vet. So the question becomes, and Erin asked this when I was doing the duck tease. She said, that sounds really dangerous. And I said, well, yeah, but if I were an anthropologist who went down to the Amazon to make contact with a low contact tribe that hated people with brown hair, I'd be running a similar risk and nobody would think twice about my doing it. They just go, oh, those crazy anthropologists. Dr. Livingston, I presume, hope you don't end up in a cannibal pot. And it's it's interesting because it's one of the myths that you don't run the same risks when you are studying Western culture. What is the difference between going to a tribe that doesn't know me or might be hostile because it's called a tribe and because Western culture has made that sound primitive than engaging with an antisocial versus pro-social actor in our community. There's no question that he is deeply committed to the community. There, there is a deep need to be connected to this community or he would have separated the click action from the, the MTG space. So he didn't keep those spaces separate. I think, he, I think he's a member of the community and you know, then there's also, I get to have some self-protection too. Like I'm not obligated to go to the cannibal pot. And then it becomes what kind of scientist am I? And I'm probably a scientist that would at least take the opportunity to engage. If you do end up uh, taking that opportunity, uh, you know, obviously we will all be concerned for your safety. This is a guy who has posted his many gun pictures. He's told protesters to come at him. <laughs> And, you know, and I'm not saying that Jeremy is the one who did this because I've watched as I've watched those videos, unfortunately, and I know he didn't broadcast this, but now Christine has received actual death and rape threats. This is that community. From his followers. From his followers, apparently, yes. Not from him directly. Yeah. If we are to believe him, he has received 
rape and death threats too, because that is the token of communication right now that is used sometimes casually, sometimes intentionally. Those lines are blurred on purpose. Jeremy doesn't have to mean it for it to be dangerous. That's right. Jeremy can be just as caught up as, as people assume his followers are. I noticed a number of people were very careful to say, I'm not worried about Jeremy, I'm worried about his followers. But once you start using that language or once you start thinking in that pattern, it becomes very difficult to break. So remember when we were talking about somebody in dress up came up to a space that was coded with seriousness because of borrowing financial world terms. And the conflict of those two things threatened identity. At this point, it really depends on how much anybody's identity is based in, in anything when they confront each other. So at, at the beginning of this podcast, jokes were made about the word triggering. And, you know, there's a gallows humor space for that. And I do actually know people on this podcast are in situations where they are using the term because it might also be something that relates to them. So joking about it for some people is okay because joking about it helps them deal with the fact that it's real. And joking about it for other people is not okay because it feels like it's trivializing the word so that when they need the word to describe what's happening to them medically, it's no longer available to them because it's been made a joke word. So, you know, that becomes a strange space to navigate. When you're an ethnographer, you let all of those things happen anyway. You only correct them when you're in the position that you would do it within the natural state of participation. And sometimes what you're asking only is that the person that is doing the thing is thinking about it. So it's a choice, right? You can be the person who chooses to use it again after I've said that or not. It can mean something differently to you. It can actually change. It's called code switching. It can change with each group that you're in. There are things that I will say with a bunch of actors and costumers that I will never say with a bunch of magic gamers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this conversations I'll have on the terraces, uh, the soccer ground, which I wouldn't, you know, yeah. say here. Right. In, in a way, I wouldn't say here. Um, I think, I mean, talking about the triggering word, like... I think like the people on what's perceived to be the alt right and stuff use that word as joke to belittle people on the left. I work in mental health. I have worked in mental health for uh, over a decade, um, and people being triggered by things is very real. Yeah, it's it's not a joke, but it's been used to ridicule and disempower people uh by people on the right that you know the the same people that would use phrases like beta and cuck i would say it's been co-opted by them as an insult and used as part of that alt-right rhetoric so when i use it as a joke yeah stop triggering me it's more sort of mocking the perception that the alt-right have of progressive people like i consider myself it's you know phil's not really triggering me but if you're saying something that's annoying me, I can use it as a battering ram. Go away as a joke between me and Phil. Right. As long as and everybody agrees just... that it's a joke, 
and you're in a in you're in a situation where it's not going to get past your in group and your in group is aware of it when you leave like so what you say between you and your friends is and i think this is one of the places where people who are not radicalized get very nervous oh my gosh i use this thing everybody's going to come after me and it might be more hey, at the time that I used this thing, I wasn't aware of its impact, and I might still use it with my in-group as an inside joke, but once we recognize it, we don't use it outside as an outside joke in order to make sure nobody is uncomfortable. There's, that's upholding the social contract, and that's called pro-social behavior. When we talk about evolving over time, so you're a mental health worker, which means that you are going to be very familiar with the fact that like you need to release things and some of the stuff you need to release as that kind of worker are not going to sound good to the, the uninitiated. Correct. So this would be a circumstance where that would be, if you're hanging out with a bunch of social workers at the bar, the same way another group of people might make off-color jokes, you're going to make a lot of kind of battlefield jokes, for lack of a better term. Um, there's whole reams and reams of anthropological work on humor and the purpose and function of humor culturally in order for people to do work that really kind of destroys them. I won't mention it because it actually might, might hurt some people, but firefighters use a particular term for children who've been severely injured by fire, and they would never use that out in you know, quote-unquote public, but among themselves, they kind of have to in order to be able to perform that job. When we talk about secondary trauma, when you hear about traumatized people and you empathize with it, you are actually feeling some of their trauma. So secondary trauma is very real, especially for things like therapists, for EMTs. and Well, EMTs are actually exposed to primary trauma. They're usually on scene for the injury, sometimes during the events. Right. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is true about magic is a lot of people in high-pressure, high-performance jobs play magic because it takes up so much of their brain that they actually <laughs> can block out the other stuff for a while. Okay, so I can testify to that myself. If I'm dealing with a particularly nasty case of like, because I work in children's mental health, uh, where a child is being abused and sometimes I have to have direct contact with the abuser. I have to deal with the direct fallout of the um, abuse itself with the traumatized child. You know, I'm looking at a 13 year old that's never going to have the same life. They, you know, they have literally a lifetime of recovery ahead of them because of what's happened to them. Thinking about what's going to go into my next Demir build or hoping there's a good Orzov commander in the next set does help me tune out that emotional baggage which you pick up secondarily by attending to that trauma i've had people say to me why don't you channel the energy you've got about enthusiasm about building magic or painting miniatures is another hobby of mine into something more constructive you could make a load of money or you know do something I'm like well i do something constructive in my profession and this is specifically this energy i spend on that is to emotionally deal with my profession. And if you think right. about the time that you're spending with deck construction and the fact that it actually allows your brain to rest to heal. So your brain needs mm. to be active. It needs to send that energy somewhere. 
But if your brain does not get the chance to look away for a minute, it's not going to heal from that trauma. And then that's how you get PST, I understand, is that you get stuck in the period yeah, well, one of the one of the therapies, uh, most basic, you don't need to be trained for approaches to dealing with people uh, who have a PTSD, and like not even just a diagnosed one, but people that have experienced trauma, is to find regular distraction. That can be something as simple as shuffling a deck of cards. And I don't mean magic cards, I mean just playing cards. Or having something sensual to fiddle with in your hands. Or that tiny that just breaks that cycle in your brain of being locked into the moment of trauma. If we think about our bad actors, our antisocial actors in this space, one of the things we might want to consider is that one of the reasons that they actually want to be part of the community or are still engaged with the game is it does the same thing for them. Yes. Talking about this point, so when dealing about these bad actors and trauma and stuff, how would you, or what advice would you give to people who are suffering harassment? So they say, look, I don't like what you're doing. It, it's particularly, I find it particularly difficult to deal with. And to quote Jeremy himself, and I'm going to use an expletive here, their response, the common response is, well, I don't give a about your feelings. And I'm quoting Jeremy directly from one of his tweets there. So how do you deal with that? Well, I don't care about your feelings. It's not my responsibility to safeguard your feelings. It's not my responsibility to be considerate about your feelings. I put content out there. I. It's up to you whether you watch it or not. Okay, so the answer to that is thank you very much for permission for me to understand that my feelings are not part of the equation for you, which means I won't use them and I'm just going to actually use other factors such as the law or the platform usage. Because if if you won't relate to me as an empathic human, I know what the rules are now. And the rules are, you don't care about me. I don't have to follow the same rules. I can still care about you. But when I care about you, I might not worry so much about other things that are important to you like your income stream you've already told me that you don't (laughs) care about my emotional state well i can go on record as going i don't actually care about your income stream uh i can take it further i am a person who believes in basic income and i think that you'd probably be a lot less stressed if we had it so i'm sorry but i don't actually have a moral problem with removing you from a space that monetizes anger because I don't care about your feelings either. And you can do that politely. For example, not that you've done this. Um, no, and actually I haven't done that because almost always I care very much. I am a person who cares. I'm also a person who deals with a lot of complicated humans because I worked in tech and international project management, and not everybody that you get to work with is a good person. But everybody that you get to work (laughs) with is a person of value. So the question really becomes, what is the EV of trying to reach you? The EV for me would be, hey, I get more of an insight into... Like, I'm really curious what kind of decks he plays. I know that sounds weird. No, it tells you a lot about who he is. Well, I'm curious at a cultural level if his style of play also matches his style of casting. 
because maybe it's all a game to him or maybe it's part of nature or maybe the culture itself gives him the space to do it and the thing that has to change is the culture. So we go back to what I said at the beginning where we try to train individuals but what's really happened is we've created a culture that allows this which leads to what brigading is. So brigading actually started as the willful manipulation of online votes and polls. So you would tell a whole bunch of people, hey, I want One Direction to lose this because it pisses off Teen Vogue and we're all going to go and we're going to vote for Tchaikovsky instead of One Direction instead because I am that kind of troll. Uh, this happened in England. There was a Christmas number one for the charts, and there was a brigade that actually got Rage Against the Machines, Killing in the Name, to the Christmas number one rather than <laughs> uh, One Direction. That happened in 2009, maybe. Yeah, and the term actually, um, the term goes back to some, some of that space. So it started with Web 2.0, and it's a manipulation of Web 2.0 because Almost all of the tech platforms were built with a belief that more openness and more transparency would lead to a better idea or world. It was done with maybe not a very varied group of people who couldn't imagine terrible things. And they may have experienced one-on-one -on -one harassment and maybe have built some separate tools for that. But the idea that harassers would actually collectively act offline in IRC channels uh, or chans or numerous other methods of coordinating off stage. So when they say, oh, he didn't call for so-and-so to do anything in that video, whoever the he is, it doesn't have to be the person in question. What we're really looking at is a version of, uh, of modern eras, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? Yes. <laughs> and Milo Yiannopoulos actually lost access to Twitter because he did that to Leslie Jones and everybody was high profile enough that it was incredibly clear what he did and that these people would not have known or bothered Leslie Jones if he had not said something. And that yeah, became that. unavoidable. And what we're looking at with, with Sprinkle is the same thing. These actors probably could have gone on indefinitely. Remember that the tech platforms that support him and the game culture that supports both of them are heavily invested in the idea that certainly this wouldn't happen. And then when it does happen, they're stuck. And you can actually see that in the responses. So culturally, there's a whole bunch of people conditioned on both sides to kind of go, this isn't really happening this way. I surely have misunderstood. Or if I had done something different, it wouldn't go this way. Mm. And that's the part that yeah. you have to fix. And that's not going to be fixed. You can deplatform this one person. Deplatforming is not the same thing as ruining somebody's First Amendment rights. Deplatforming is what happens when the thing that you're selling is too dangerous to allow to be sold. We have all sorts of regulations on all sorts of things to keep people from selling dangerous stuff. As someone that doesn't have First Amendment rights, in England, we have freedom of speech, but there are things you aren't allowed to say in any context. I cannot racially abuse someone, for example, even in the name of satire. <laughs> and there's a sort of a big debate, comedians mostly launching it in the UK, about what you can and can't say. 
And when you were saying that uh, Jeremy poked someone who was too high profile, and that's what spawned this off, like, I think subconsciously he might have been trying to get this reaction. Because when he, within the same period of time, attributed Mark Rosewater's name to Weinstein-esque levels of abuse and a clickbait post. And if you actually watch the whole video, you realize it's not about that. That's clearly what he was implying with his clickbait. It's the actions of someone that's looking for this, that is seeking this kind of downfall. And I just... It does seem like he's pushing past the resources he's got that are going to culturally support him. So he will always have a certain amount of support. Is he trying to be... Like, Milo Yiannopoulos is a good example. Now, I have an interesting uh, opinion on Milo. I agree with a couple of the things he says around certain issues, but he says it in such an abhorrent way, he actually pushes me to disagree with him. And he did it as well. I don't think he ever thought that like Breitbart would remove him. Um, and that even people on the alt-right would start to say, actually, no... <laughs> And I wonder if Jeremy's turning into the Milo of of the magic community. <laughs> or is that giving Jeremy too much credit? So I think part of the question there is going to be, is he really still aiming towards the magic community? Or has he aimed towards the type of community and the profit motive that Milo has? Because one of the, the mistakes I think we're making in the framing is assuming he's aimed towards the community as opposed to using the community as a medium to get the attention of a different community. That's right. He certainly seems to be moving in that direction. His tactics and his overall strategy is nearly identical to the strategies we saw last year during the American political the presidential election. Populism. And he is crowing about how various people from outside of the magic community are now paying attention to him and that he's even seen a bump in subscribers. Now, where are those people coming from? Like, that would be natural, right? Like, a bunch of people might track him just to make sure he's, you know, to check out whether or not they're targeted. A bunch of people are going to click in to see if it's not that bad. A bunch of people are going to click in because they agree with him initially, and he may or may not keep them because he produces a lot of content, and he goes in a lot of different directions. So... You would treat it like ratings. Like if, if you stop treating it like an individual pathology, if you start treating it like the cultural melu that it's set in, it's set in a monetized format that is currently being disrupted by rules changes that he has already successfully used numerous tools in order to maximize. But ha- having the person with 4 million followers give you the support of objectivity, like, hey, give him a chance. Even that is going to up his numbers, upping his numbers, ups his views. Even if he wanted to shut the whole thing down and become a follower of the Pope tomorrow, he would carry those people with him because now they are interested. They're invested in his story. Right. So... I would actually like to take it away from the person so much and say the things that he's doing are things that YouTube encourages specifically if this is your goal to monetize that space. Now, there's another saying that comes from activists, which is they are who they tell you they are. Yeah, it's true. It's absolutely true. And there is 
there is a point where, you know, I would give him the benefit of hearing him, but that doesn't mean he isn't who he says he is. Well, I'd have him on this show. I'd love to have him on this show. He wouldn't come on. That would be interesting because I, I guess I don't really think of, I mean, I'm thrilled to be invited here. Uh, you guys are one of the reasons I came back to playing Commander for fun. Sweet. But I don't think of you guys as an interview space. Yeah, I I mean, if you look at sort of the, I don't I don't want to sound vainglorious and say we're one of the bigger Commander podcasts, but I think we've been around. Go for vainglory. <laughs> okay, looking at it as one of the bigger magic uh, Commander podcasts, should I say? Uh, and by bigger, I mean we've been going a while. We're established. We've got a good listener base. I think we have an identity. Our identity, I think, has come from not being super cutthroat. If you not cutthroat is the wrong word. If you <laughs> want to be, you know technical sort of hard card reviews and stuff i think you go to the command zone guys if you're more interested in the budget side of stuff uh, and more pure comedy you go commander's brew and there's other really great podcasts coming up like brothers war um there's a there's a load of others we sit in a space i think somewhere between commander's brew and command zone but we have all the interviews with creators on and we that's true really pride ourselves in that um and I would love to interview... I mean, you're on, Adrian, and we'd have you on anyway just to talk about cards. We wouldn't only have you on to talk about... Someday we can talk about art. Yes, I mean, they, exactly, there you go. And we for can... anybody still listening, we will eventually talk about cards, <laughs> although briefly at this point. Yes, this shouldn't be your first episode. We have already said that, but just a reminder. <laughs> I, I'm expecting a certain amount of this to get cut for time. Um, maybe. <laughs> We like long episodes. We're one of the longer shows out there. I I would have Jeremy on in a heartbeat. I would even have him on. But then the question is, am I only having him on because of this controversy? Because before this, I wouldn't have had him on because I generally didn't like his content. I found it very aggressive. So it, at that point, if you had him on this show, would I be combative? And then what's the point? Or am I just playing his game, if he has that game, uh, of giving him the oxygen of publicity that he's only accessed because of the controversy he has created? What I would power there is an open invitation to Sprankle to come on and just talk about cards you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. And just to show her that a majority of content creators are decent people and appreciate her work and value her opinion. I mean, I love the sentiment there. And if we have Christine Sprankle on, she's the queen of cosplay, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's she's one of the top cosplayers in the world. We have to talk about cosplay. So, Christine, you don't listen to this, but let's say Christine did. We would talk a little bit about cosplay, and then we would talk about cards. True. The thing that I would say so is this, Sean, oh, you might yeah. be following the same impulse for an interesting story that Jeremy follows on his content creation. Here's what I would say as both a listener and an anthropologist. What would be more interesting to me, although honestly, like, you know, cage match between you and Jeremy on a podcast as a separate special event could definitely be a thing. But you'd both know it. We're both following the impulse of desire for high drama. Um, yeah. I would actually be much more interested in a roundtable with 
the people who have who are not Christine Sprankle that are content creators on podcasts and YouTube that came out afterwards to find out how they feel in the aftermath, what is and isn't supporting them. They have amazing people who are doing fantastic things, building up the positive of the community in a time that we also have to be honest about what the negative aspects of the community are. It doesn't take a lot of bad actors to make things very uncomfortable for a wide swath of marginalized people. So, so if we had a, a Jeremy Sean cage match, that should be labeled as such. But if it were a commandering thing, wouldn't it be interesting for you to have command zone on to find out what Again, it felt yeah. like to not be live this week? I mean, Josh and Jimmy, as they're both well aware, are, are always welcome on our show. As is the professor, actually. And Wedge hasn't been on because of a logistical cock-up where I think we upset him. Sorry, Wedge. Oh. Oh. I met him at Hascon um, for the first time. He's a lovely human. He is awesome. He's, He's wonderful. Awesome. The short version is we organized the time for him to be on the show. I we messed up. up. Well, Phil messed up, yeah. No, but Phil does so much good work. We messed up, and it kind of put him out, and uh, I've not quite worked out a way to mend that bridge. Anyway, but we would have Wedge on, is the point. Um, they're always welcome. And I guess, like, if I could ask Jeremy two questions, and this is this will be my last bit on him before we talk about sort of what's his responsibility for all this. I would ask, one, when you post things like... Not even the Sprankle thing. Things like Mark Rosewater is a serial abuser of his stuff. Why are you doing that? What What is it you... Oh, be honest and open. What is it you are trying to achieve by posting that sort of inflammatory stuff? Because you might have a problem with Watsy, but you are effectively destroying a man you've probably never had any real interaction with, reputation, that could follow him for the rest of his career. And the second thing is, is what is your end game in all this? Like, what are you trying to achieve? You look unhappy in your videos. You look anxious. You sound that you've said yourself, you've been under attack yourself, so you know what you're claiming uh, what other people are claiming is upsetting them. You know what that feels like. It's not too late. You can turn this around. Just say, do you know what? I was under a lot of pressure. Whatever it is, I, I did some things I'm not proud of. I expressed my opinion in a way which other people found abhorrent. How can I redress this? The community, uh, the non-bad actor side of the community does have in toolbox forgiveness i've found and people will enjoy a redemptive story as much as they enjoy a villain enjoy might be the wrong word but you know what I mean. people people That's are interested point. in the comeback story um i don't know he does look unhappy i mean i'm you, saying from a professional perspective yeah. i was studying him as watching his videos looking for the ticks and stuff he looks really down i'm sure he'll if he hears this he'll post something saying me down ha 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 i'm happier than i've ever been or something like that you know because that's the general rebuttal response but to quote fight club there's a sick desperation in your laugh someday i'm gonna have to see fight club <laughs> 
So what is Wizards of the Coast's responsibility in this? Okay, so WotC actually released a letter on Sunday. They were on vacation. They were running a major event in France, and they do not have a crisis team set up to handle, in effect, on-call social community emergencies. You can tell that they actually have something set up that they've been working on, but the time for setup does not seem to be relevant to the way the community moves at the pace it moves at right now. So we're still fighting misinformation from Pax Unplugged, where people are spreading a rumor that they lost 40% of their total market, and that didn't happen. That was a piece of a speech taken out of context by the same kind of media environment that has created the environment for harassment that we have in the first place. So we're actually really looking at paths of communication that are fractured and broken and not centralized. Watsi's actual responsibility is to create a space that is at least as coordinated as organized Little League. So whatever you would do to keep people from beating each other up at Little League is actually the organizational (laughs) responsibility of Watsi. Whether or not they've thought about it that way, whether or not they've actually used the tools, they're still approaching it from this gamer culture environment, which is a lot of, hey, it's not real, or, you know, this this policing of reality and unreality is actually the problem at the root. It's real when you're dealing with people. And as soon as everyone can accept that all of these things are real, then we are going to be able to start addressing practical things that allow it. For instance, one of the things that should have happened is there should have been a clear place to report. There are three different ways to report, and they are not centrally located, and you can't find them on the website really fast. So if you're having a problem, you have to actually sometimes sign up to be able to report to send an email. That's a problem. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's, that's a thing that Watsi can fix. Training of judges or clarifying judges, or there was a very good suggestion from the community about creating within the organized play area specialized marshals that are actually only about handling complex social and legal issues that are professionals that are meant to do that and nothing else. That should be a paid role with possibly two employees that are dedicated to that that can alternate each other. Having having yeah. a response team be on call instead of unavailable. You don't have to kill somebody's whole Thanksgiving weekend. Lots of jobs have on call. It's not unusual. These are very, very basic things, but once they're there, everybody on the outside knows, oh, this organization takes these things seriously enough that before I even start there may be some consequences that I don't want to get involved with. Right now, the only consequence you have to worry about is whether or not Hasbro is going to send lawyers, and most people know that they're too small fry for that. So when you come to the attention of Watsi, you're not really worried about long-term impact, and you think you can get away with it. So if we're back to that rules lawyering, like maybe it's a game, maybe it's a griefer game, Part of the game would be how far can I push it before I actually get Watsi's attention. But he's already gotten Watsi's attention in this case, and Watsi didn't do anything, so it keeps allowing the boundary to slip. 
that's a cultural fix. So you have to do it through cultural ways. And signaling matters. So I know we're supposed to ignore the trolls, except you're not. They never go away. They never go away. They find out what the boundaries are, and they keep pushing those boundaries further and further because some of them that's the game and because some of them that's actually they're just abusers and this is just their tool for abuse. I am not making a value statement about anybody that we're talking about. That is the nature of pushing taboo and contagion. You get power, anthropologically, you get power from interacting with the contagion and coming out somewhat whole. It gives you status in almost every culture. So taboo is holy, rituals of purification are holy. Watsi is the temple that determines what is and is not pure. That's well put. If you're sitting at Watsi and it's out something's happened in the community like what's happened now and it's outside of organized play gps friday night magics what can you do they can't other than sending the lawyers they can't actually stop someone like jeremy or whoever the next jeremy is and whoever the one after that is you can't stop people posting to YouTube. Well, YouTube might actually demonetize itself, like its monetization rules might actually change yeah, that. Yeah, I know, I know. Then you're going to move to Twitch. Yeah, so there was a bit of a backlash at Watsi um, about this, saying, well, Watsi only got involved when uh, someone high-profile uh, made a point, like Sprankle quitting was that point, and she's the high-profile person in question. I, <laughs> what... I still don't know, other than people stop playing and it hurts their profits, I'm not sure and how, how what's he can do anything about the Jeremys. Like, they stopped giving him uh, promo cards, preview cards, sorry, um, quite a while ago. Hilariously, he got one by accident and then had a stamp your feet hissy fit when he realised uh, someone said, no, no, we gave that to you by accident. Please don't do that. That was the first time he really came to our, well, to my attention. Yeah, yeah, I remember it well. Like, they stopped supporting him in that in the way they support us or the way they support, you know, Command Zone. They've stopped that. I seriously doubt your Ethan Fleischers or your Gavin Verhays are going to appear on his channel giving interviews anytime soon. So access to the high-ranking staffers in R&D, he's probably... What What can they do? So this would be a part where I would have to study the environment of YouTube a little bit more, but there are prominent uses of Magic's iconography, of Magic's trademark goods. Some mm -hmm. stuff you can't stop, and that's fine. What you have to do is you have to make sure that it is also not welcomed. That would be non-response allows them to feel that they can get there so you have to just stop welcoming them and silence is welcoming silence is assent yes it is yeah that's the problem that's the problem with don't feed the trolls is silence is assent so individuals have to make that choice but the corporation cannot be silent and i am going to have to say that if you have to protect your trademark to the point where, you know, every now and then you have to send a threatening note to a fan artist that I think that it is within capacity to send cease and desist letters. Even if the act is performative and ritual, you have those performative rituals in order to reinforce the boundary of taboo and keep the power of contagion to yourself in that holy temple. Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, they have they have some pretty clear responsibilities there. They actually have a little bit more leverage than many people think, right? Uh, in part because those trademarks are being used as a vehicle for this kind of harassment and at the very least, let's call it abuse. And the the other thing they can do is they can lean on the tournament organizers to ensure that people who are well-known and easily identifiable, say because they have a very distinctive beard and a presence on YouTube where their face is visible throughout their videos, let's say, they can ban them from appearing in the venues, right? Because they present a danger. They can do that. And and the other thing is just much, much simpler, which is this person is not associated with us, not welcome. The act of continuously sending the... Here's the thing. Watsi was actually part of a similar act against them early in its history. Watsi itself was actually a victim of similar tools used against it by the satanic panic early in its career, <laughs> where they had to stop using, you know, the holy, the unholy strength symbol in order to prove that they were not really trying to corrupt the youth and Satanists. So there are strong cultural DNA reasons that they might be reacting like gamers instead of reacting like a typical corporation in this circumstance. And that's one of the things to kind of keep in mind when we're talking about it. They're still sort of reacting community peer to community peer, as opposed to corporate best practices to community. Uh, that's the shift that would have to change, that I think that they're trying to get to, but we'll have to see. The The response time was too slow. Elaine Chase is always very good at communicating when she does, but it did have that investigations.com thing down at the bottom instead of the top. So it would also behoove everybody involved to start working with professionals who deal with crisis management and also be able to have tools ready for targeted members of the community where Watsi supports everyone involved for the fairness involved. So... Um, Alex Ullman is a Title IX specialist at college and was speaking about things that were very similar in handling Title IX cases to the many complex issues in this too. Because for the sake of community, you also want Jeremy treated fairly. Yeah. It's important to have due process if you're the corporation and the high temple. But you have to have it move a little faster. Yeah, I mean, you have to have due process. And you have to have thought about it in advance. So here's hoping that we get through this one without much further damage to anybody, but that we never have it unthought about again. Right. So hopefully we will see something along those lines soon. Now, Adrian, we want to end on a positive note, and we really do thank you for all of the energy you've put into coming here today. We've been recording for quite some time, and for you, it's three hours later than me, and it's actually five hours earlier than uh, Sean. It's 8 a.m. I am at 3.02 yes. a.m. <laughs> yeah, and I'm only 12.02. Lucky you. you so let's, uh, let's have a digestive, if you will, and um, we'll take five minutes to talk about your favorite deck. Now, we have a link to this deck, and we will post that along with the show notes. And 
if truth be told, I'm probably going to copy it and put it in our guest folder up on DeckStats. You can always see our decks at deckstats.net slash commander and MTG. We actually have a direct link now on DeckStats, by the way. It's fantastic. You should be doing all of your deck storage on DeckStats. We don't get any kind of money, no, no endorsement, nothing like that. He just uh, created the link for us. So tell us about your deck. Okay, so my deck is a KNT hug deck that I actually What is KNT hug deck? That's that's the part where I'm going to mispronounce my commander's name. Kyneos <laughs> Kyneos and Kyneos and Tiran. Tiras? Tiro. Tiro. That's why I call them KNT. <laughs> <laughs> of Miletus. Parade Float Mare. Yes. When I saw you playing a similar deck at GP Vegas this year, I loved the way it got everybody to play their stuff. Everybody got to kind of live their dream. And then it kept the board play fair. And I've never been able to play a deck like that. So I borrowed your list and I customized it a little bit. And I... I love playing this deck. It takes all of the fear away from asking people for a game with an unknown group of people, which is something I have to do a lot. And if I'm not doing it for the study, it's actually really scary. So, so this deck has let me play for fun again. Awesome. I'm, I'm shocked to hear that Sean played a group hug deck. I wasn't Sean. I was Philip. Did I say Sean? <laughs> no, you said you. <laughs> oh, I said you. Okay. <laughs> and I was just, I was just really enjoying <laughs> the, idea the image of Sean? of Sean playing this deck. <laughs> okay, I did play with both of you at GP Vegas, and I would, I would, I played against a group hug deck. So we were playing two group hug decks and a pot of five with me playing. This yeah, that deck, was crazy. And somebody else was playing a much more like it pretends to be group hug for like five rounds, and then it's not. Yeah, but so much mana. People, people were able to like play five lands in a turn between the two of us. Was I in that game? I can't remember. No, you were not in this game. You were actually off playing with Josh at the at the time. And the game wow. that I'm talking about actually happened last week at Pax Unplugged. Oh, excellent! Yeah, it it, yeah. it happens more than you think. Yeah. So, uh, what are the three stars of the deck that you've twisted? Okay, so. No. <laughs> I'm a little twisted. So deflecting palm has been amazing. What happens oh. is I live until the end and then somebody really concentrates on trying to take apart my pillow fort or the large quantity of ogres that I suddenly have. And usually by this point, you've got infinite mana without ever having to get near a combo and they attack me with their commander and then I hit it with Deflecting Palm, and it kills them right away, which is how I won my very, very first game. Somebody was coming at me with a Miri that was, you know, 27 points. So they did 27 points of commander damage to themselves with their own commander, and that's how I won that game. So Deflecting Palm is my absolute favorite. If I get it in my opening hand, I save it until forever. The other real star of the deck is the Mana Flare that I play is my Mana Flare from back in the day. Uh, nobody, n nobody expects Mana Flare. They don't recognize the card, even if they're hardcore. So really, yeah, yeah, it's funny. I, Back it's in just not original played. days of Fireball decks. Mana Flare was a win. So yeah, and I've got the white bordered one, so it tilts people. Uh, but <laughs> but they just like they don't recognize the art. It's it doesn't have the good typography or anything like that. And uh, it comes out and it makes everything go much faster. So they like it when they see it. 
it's just it makes me happy when I bring it out. It makes people happy on the table. So I, it's I love smiling. It, for that. it is smiling. Right it is smiling and giving you more mana. And don't you want more mana? Don't answer that, Sean. <laughs> Then the last MVP is really uh, treacherous terrain. What happened is, oh, what happened yeah. is this: I have reached the point with this deck where it makes me play very differently. Like I'm usually very hesitant about timings on instants or really complex stack interactions, but I feel more secure with it when I play this deck. So now I've sort of reached a point where I really feel group huggy about it, and I don't actually want to ever have to swing for damage. I want you to actually just die because of the board state. So it's not really my <laughs> fault. I tried to hug you. I just didn't hug the right way. And Treacherous Terrain twice has actually been the win condition where I could have swung to win, but I searched up the sorcery instead so that it was you were killed by your own lands. <laughs> nice. That's call. beautiful. Yeah. I'm your friendly ah. neighborhood ethnographer. <laughs> now, does your version still have Gisela in it? Yes. Yeah. I have noticed that when I bring Gisela out, they go, that's not huggy. I'm like, it's a really spiky hug. Hugs yourself. <laughs> also, she's she's angry about what's going to happen to her. Yeah. And we are just going to hug, 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 hug. It, it hugs me. It's like a warm blanket of angel <laughs> wings. It makes me think of Heather. Oh, that's sweet. I have one with Gisela and Treacherous Terrain many times. <laughs> the first time I managed to get Treacherous Terrain to win because I knew that they had all of that land because I made them have it because there are two decks in my deck that don't have May for playing the land. I was just like, yeah. that's really mean. But you know what? We're the last two people standing. And it's okay now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tell people that we're going to hug and I'm going to make sure that everybody gets to do everything they've always wanted to do with their deck, except hurt my stuff. Yeah. There was somebody, <laughs> there There was a point where we were playing and somebody was like, you're the group hug deck, can't you save me? And I'm like, I don't have anything that's going to save you, but I do have something that will make everybody stop and think for a minute. And I forget what thing I played. It was probably like waveform or, or something that, that was a board reset in some way. And that, that was like the huggiest thing because I did end up winning because they stopped long enough to beat their foe and then I killed them. Nice. Sean, you were quiet through that. Anything you want to add? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine. Um, I was just uh, thinking... How would I kill people because of their lands? I remember I already do using karma. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and this one, Sean, you would absolutely murder everybody at the table because you would drop karma. Everybody at that point probably has like fourteen lands in Minimum. play, and yeah. that's life for me because I'm playing with Ailey. That's right. Yeah, you're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> One of my biggest surprises playing this deck, because I, I put it together before I could really study it, and then I, they started offering FNM with Commander in it, and I'm like, okay, I can, oh, so lucky. I can do this, because I, I couldn't play Standard. And, yeah, so, so I started going over with Commander, and I played this first, because I have a Stalking Tiger deck that's not street legal. So, so this is my legal deck now, so that after we're done with the tournament, we can play my Stalking Tiger deck. Yeah. But but I had not played the character before, 
So I had the commander in, and then I realized it had an eight defense. And people were <laughs> yeah. swinging at me, and it didn't matter, because K and T will just hug you closer. <laughs> yep, yep. Mm. It's a very fun deck to play in mixed company. You know, you're, you're probably not going to win against a really tuned deck, and like, you know, something Sean would bring. And Shut your mouth. And at the same time, it makes sure that everybody gets to play the game. It's uh, it's liberating. <laughs> it's wonderful. People it, it's that don't fun. like this sort of hug deck, when they cast the uh, Tempt with Discovery, the answer is always no. No, I don't want to put any manner into that, please. No, it's not the Tempt, it's not the tempt with Discovery. It's the... Um, oh, the uh, other one where you... Yeah, anything where they can put a ton of land into play and you get something, don't. Don't do it. No, but you are getting the land, Sean. We're all getting the land. Yeah. And, but... and it's not even like it's the, the, the attempt with Discovery where it's like you get some basics and I just get, you know, a land. It's everybody is going going on a journey together. I think, it, what is it? It's a collective voyage, right? Collective it's voyage. Collective yeah, collective attempt. We're both... You should say no to both of them. No, no. Collective voyage, everybody gets land. <laughs> yeah, but it's when the Terastodon comes down that you play immediately afterwards and you go, oh, I trashed three of your land. You're like... <sighs> There's no Terastodon in this. There a is no Terastodon is not huggy. I, I think I took out one or two things that were a little spiky and made it... One of the things that I really like about the construction of this deck is even when I use any of the control pieces they always give the other player something. So yeah. so I really like that. And the other thing is people probably let me get away with it because I do a running commentary on how lovely and hugging everything is. So that happens. It's because everything is huggy, It Sean. is. I have taken your Terastodon and given you this lovely little 3-3 beast. Don't you like it? It's like a baby version of your Terastodon. I've told this story multiple times, <laughs> but... Uh... There was a game Phil was playing against me and Nate once where he <laughs> flickered his Terastodon so many times he destroyed our entire board states. Uh, but what he forgot was that we each had... No, you left our creatures because you can't target them. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but what he forgot was that me and Nate then each had, you know, 15 elephants. Yes. <laughs> so, Adrian... I left Nate and Sean together with 15 elephants at the equivalent of turn three. And they didn't make Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus? Because that's what I would have done. Oh, they did. Well, we, they made it we, on we me. <laughs> showed Phil what would happen if in that scene in Dumbo with the pink drunk elephants, instead of getting drunk, they were taking PCP. <laughs> and cool. sent them after him. And then me and Nate played a game. It turns out a Terracidon can only block one elephant at a time. <laughs> no matter how many times you flick at it. Isn't there a card for that? I'm sure that there's a card for that to make your Terracidon wider. You know, sometimes you're not worried about the Terracidon blocking things. Sometimes you just get heady with Terracidon power. <laughs> Oh, mate, anyway. we should start a power metal band called Terastodon Power. <laughs> uh, Rubble Hulk is in the deck. I, I, One of the times that I was trying to win some other way, I had my Rubble Hulk up at like 30-ish. That's amazing. So, listeners, have no fear. After this episode, normal 
talking nonsense about cards will resume. Have no fear. They should have a little fear. A little fear, Sean. Yeah. I've listened to you guys. They should be they should be mildly afraid. But it will be about cards <laughs> instead <Yes>. of people. <laughs> well, thanks for hanging out with us, everyone. Anyone who's made it this far, who knows how long this episode is. Listeners, you rock for making it this long and Oh my goodness, we're so grateful for all of you. And we intend to foster an inclusive and healthy community. And if you are somebody who doesn't want that, well, sorry, you're going to have to put up with us. Adrian, Mm -hmm. at the risk of exposing yourself to a brigade of fans, how can our listeners reach you? Uh, On Twitter, I am Dreamtime Drin. I'm playing with the idea of podcasting myself soon. So Mm -hmm. when I do that... I will announce it on Twitter. That's excellent. We want to offer special thanks to all of our patrons who support us by donating to the show so that we can keep improving. We're eventually going to start doing more video content and our patron support will be directly responsible for that. Mm. And each week we like to call out three of you. And this week we're calling out. Oh, may I? I like to murder. Absolutely. Names. Seems to be a Scandinavian special this week. My uh, brothers in the north and sisters. I will see you in Valhalla one day. I'll see you in Valhalla, Lucas Braham. I will also see you there, Björd Andre Bendixson. Mm-hmm. And last but definitely not least in Odin's eyes, Karl Hilperin. <laughs> I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should go see Thor Ragnarok now, which I still haven't seen. I'm going to go listen to some Dark Throne. So I also want to take the time to mention that one of our patrons and a longtime supporter, Russell Lee, he's started his own podcast called Commander Clinic. And he takes decks and he looks at them and he evaluates them. And I think he gets a group of people together to to look at it. And we've been chatting back and forth about whether or not he should do it. And, of course, I'm always like, just do it. Just do it. Do the podcast. And as a patron, I wanted to call it out because Russell is an extra special person. I think all three of us have interacted with him multiple times. Mm. I'd like it if our listeners gave him some time. This is Rogue Artificer, right? Yes, it's Rogue Artificer. He's the person who helped me build my Stalking Tiger deck. See? See, he's lovely. He's lovely. Phil, yeah. we need to talk about all these new podcasts starting. We need to start crushing a few of them. Yes, quite a few. We'll start yes. with Brothers War. Does Does crushing mean invite them over to play Commander? Basically. Okay. Mm. <laughs> Beat them so bad, they never want to play the format again. No, no, you want to hug them. <laughs> Or you want to send Stalking Tiger through so everybody can open packs together. What I love about the group hug deck, as an aside, is Sean likes to play this mill deck that's incredibly effective (laughs) and super fun to play. But when he mills this deck, he can't actually get a lot out of it. Every once in a while, he'll hit something. But there's only like 15 creatures in the entire deck, so most of the time he picks a different mill target. But one of them is Gisela. Yeah, one of them is Gisela. <laughs> it's a good bribery target, I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as soon as I work out as a Gisela in there, my focus goes, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I believe you've not met my friend Lazav. I had Gisela as a commander, but that's the way that I learned that you can be killed by your own commander damage. It's also a way you can be uh, killed by just the expectation of the other players. Yeah. yeah. Aurelia is the Boros Angels commander. She is the one, in my opinion. Anyway, we're going down a sweaty Boros hole. Adrian, we always ask our guests to take us out, as you well know, because I know you're a voracious consumer of our content. So, uh, if you would do the honor. Be excellent to one another. Oh, that's so nice. Station! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Mandarin. <laughs> Hi, Adrian. Oh, is she back? back? She just said I'm back. Hold on, but I, I'm uh, I'm messing with the earphones too. Oh, it's time for the we battle with the hair. We were not at all. We were not at all talking about. You have a split personality it. where one of you is a New York goon. <laughs> I am so a New Yorker. See, I told you. Yeah. Bill's a New Yorker as well, and he's an Italian. That's why he gesticulates with his hands all the oh, time. Oh, no, it, it, it's yeah. a problem. But I, I have actually been corporately trained not to do it once I've been made aware of it. So, Hey, you <laughs> um, See, but that individual training is not actually solving the problem. Well, I'm the problem in that case. just the culture. How do we solve the problem of uh, New Yorkers? <laughs> you don't. No, you can you can only make us code switch, which is what I'm doing. <laughs>